in a world filled with intergalactic space battles. Metahuman destruction on a global scale. And psychopathic serial hauntings. There's only one team who can make sense of it all. When your world is overrun with rampant pop culture. Call Luminary Guardians of Geek. Wow, once again, <laughs> explosions everywhere. There, there is no escaping that. Never, never going to escape <laughs> Pop that. culture shrapnel, as I like to call it. <laughs> All right. We have a, a very special podcast today. We've got a very special guest. This is this is very exciting for, for Loop and I uh, to have this gentleman on with us. His name is David Weiner. And let me give you a little bit of a background here. Uh, David spent a, a solid 13 years as a writer interviewer for Entertainment Tonight. He was a regular contributor to Hall the Hollywood Reporter, LA Weekly, and Variety. For a stint there, he was an executive editor at Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Very cool. Which is pretty amazing. He's also the creator of ItCameFromBlog.com, an amazing pop culture website, which you should definitely check out. And because I'm a Star Wars nerd, as everybody at this point knows, this, <laughs> this for me is pretty exciting. Um, David was the one who actually broke the news worldwide that Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher were returning to Star Wars in The Force Awakens a full year before Disney announced it officially. And why did he do that? Well, because Mark Hamill told him. How cool is that? <laughs> you know what we should do is say hi to him. He's right here hey, on the phone. Hi. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Excellent. Well, let me just tell you why David's here. David's here because currently he is the writer and director of what could potentially be one of the coolest documentaries yeah. that we've seen in years called In Search of Darkness, A Journey into Iconic 80s Horror. And it is the first documentary that literally is setting out to capture what made horror so incredible in the 1980s. In the 1980s is when Loop and I started really getting into <laughs> yeah. horror. So for us, this is pretty exciting. So we wanted to talk to David a little bit about the process and how this all came to be. So since you're there and we can ask you the question, why this documentary? Why this documentary? Well, before I even lose my train of thought, I have to say that you guys have tremendous geek cred by putting the Wilhelm scream in your opening. <laughs> we actually base the entire intro around that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. It's very, very important. <laughs> Culture. It's a cultural touchstone at this point. It really is. Well, you know, uh, like you said, I, I uh, have a background. I was the executive uh, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, and 2015 and 2016. And uh, uh, I, I've been a monster kid ever since I was a kid. Uh, reading famous monsters, reading Fangoria, uh, watching monster movies of variety, a variety of sizes, whether it's, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and the Universal Monsters or Godzilla. And then the 80s, you know, that all really kind of changed. And, uh, you know, boy, the franchises grew. You had probably the 13th franchise and Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween yeah. in 1978 just absolutely rocked my world and scared the absolute crap out of me. Game changer <laughs> for sure. More, but I'm not sure if I can curse on your <laughs> But uh, an opportunity has, has came along uh, to be part of this amazing, amazing collective that's doing these wonderful 80s documentaries that are executive produced by Robin Block. Uh, who's based in the UK. He's doing an uh, 80s action heroes documentary. He's doing this 80s uh, horror documentary, and he has more in store. Oh, wow. And um, I came on to this project, and, uh, you know, by hook and by crook and by perhaps just genuine enthusiasm, 
uh, I'm now uh, writing and directing it. So we've interviewed 40 plus icons of the uh, of the era. Um, everyone from Kevin Langenkamp of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Uh, we talked to Joe Dante, oh. you know, Gremlins and Howling. Uh, who else? Barbara Crampton, Stuart Gordon, Jeffrey Combs, and Brian Yuzna, uh, who are all part of you know the Animator and From Beyond. Greg yeah. Nicotero, uh, boy, it's just on and on and on. Tom Holland, uh, Don Mancini of Child's Play, you know, Fright Night. You are literally you're listing the like the icons of our youth. <laughs> so this is this is so fantastic. Well, what's so wonderful about it for me is, is uh, one of the things I, I've gotten to do for a living, which has been a real privilege and treat for me, is to be able to sit down with these 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 people who I really, really admire, filmmakers, actors, special effects folks, composers, and uh, really kind of pick their brains about the creative process. And, and, and if I can get a, a venue where we could talk for more than five or ten minutes like you would at a junket, you really get wonderful stories out of these people. I can imagine. I mean, what they did for the genre at the time was was completely groundbreaking. And I mean, a lot of them, I assume, were doing things for the first time as far as special effects and and storytelling because the the genre hadn't developed the way it did in, until the eighties. And and it absolutely exploded in in that decade with practical effects. Yes. And 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 there was sort of it was kind of the wild west because. The whole dynamic of that, about the way we would consume these movies was it wasn't always on the big screen or even the drive-in. Um, you could go to your video store or you could watch cable TV, sometimes at 2 in the morning, like I did, watching Friday the 13th for the first time. Yeah, scared, yeah. again, the crap out of me. Yeah. And I <laughs> you know, I was 12. <laughs> I will date myself with my age. I was 12 years old when that happened, you know, in 1980. Yeah. You know, I probably saw it in 81, you know, on, on HBO. But uh, It was even scary on Laserdisc as well. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> God. But it was so crisp and clean, and the sound was so spectacular. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, the, the dynamic of how you could consume these these movies changed and and it was like i was saying the wild west because the straight to video became a thing so you didn't have to market the, your film it costs a lot of money to market and distribute your film and if you could just come up with the, the ultimate poster that sold yeah, yeah. to the person in the video store aisle exactly what they were looking for whether it was a name or whether it was a uh, gore or nudity or violence or whatever you know the the creativity of the fantasy element of it was you know you, you had something that was really different than what you had before in the previous decade can we talk a bit about the vhs uh, era for for 80s horror because i think that there's will never be a time like that again because i i distinctively remember all the the covers of all those horror movies <laughs> and it was it was just a special time I, I always go to Chopping Mall as the prime uh, yes. example yes. Of, yep. what I, of, what I, of what I chose not to see because I, I, I like Chopping Mall. And yeah. You see a bag with a bunch of body parts, and I, I was just <laughs> like, that, you know, that's, I love horror, but that's just, I'm not feeling it. I just had my pizza dinner. I don't want it. So. <laughs> and then I remember when I finally got to that movie, and I'm like, wait, this is like, you know, short circuit Terminator in yes. a shopping mall. Yeah. Then, you know, I was like, wait a minute, this was completely sold in a different, you know, to someone else. It, and uh, it's very interesting. It is. And it really, those images, the still images from the posters and the and the VHS boxes 
are are part of what sort of sticks with us. It's interesting. We uh, one of our earlier podcasts we did uh, a review of the Gate um, from mm-hmm. from the eighties. Um, I I hadn't seen it since probably the early nineties. Uh, Loop ha- thinks he saw. I thought yeah, he saw. I, it. I wasn't sure. I saw so many horror movies at that time yeah. period. <laughs> but as soon as I showed him the cover art from the VHS box, instantly it came back. Oh, it brings back. It's bring as the, as these kids say these days. It brings back the feels. Yes, you know? <laughs> and that's what the nostalgia is all about, and that's really what we're kind of searching for in in search of darkness is is an opportunity to make you say, "Oh my God, I remember that film." Or, "Oh, I always wanted to know more about that film, but I was afraid to even like check it out at the video store." That's right. And and if we if we've achieved our goal, you see this. You learn something, and then you go straight to you know binge watch, or go to you know find some VHS at uh, Goodwill. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> VHS player. That's right. Well, it's interesting. I've shown uh, the trailer because the trailer is out now. The full length trailer is out for the doc, and the trailer mm-hmm. is every horror fan's memories all put together in one in one video. And I've shown it to a number of colleagues and friends, and. Every response I get is, I need to start rewatching those movies right now. <laughs> like, right now. <laughs> it really, it brings, it, there's something visceral about seeing these images that you haven't seen since you were a kid and how, how different uh, the horror genre and movie making has become since then. And any, any, I mean, if anything, we're, we're, we're calling this the definitive uh, documentary about 80s horror. And, and that's definitely a, a challenging term. Because there are so many amazing movies, and and you know you could do sort of a broad spectrum and, and touch a little bit on some of the bigger films that are out there and the bigger franchise that I had mentioned earlier. But there are so many deep dive, you know, strange titles. Even The Gate is yeah. one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a great movie that 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 really specialized in in camera special effects and you know forced perspective and so on and so forth. And and that's a fun one. You know, especially like when that body falls and you have all the little minions. Oh, oh yeah, it's amazing. Floor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In talking with uh, with the copious amounts of people you've you've talked to so far, have has has there been a story that's really surprised you, like sh- shocked you about h- how a film was came together or what what it took, or or was there a moment that you just went, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, you know that's a great question, and I, and I really need to lock those in my head because I there it's it's all a big jumble in my brain right now. <laughs> stories, there really are. Um, I think what comes to mind right now, just randomly, is uh, talking to Kane Hodder, uh, you know, who plays Jason in, in four of the uh, Friday the 13th movies, um, two of them that were in the 80s, because uh, he did seven. His first was seven, and then he did eight, and then uh, nine. Uh, what? X, I'm now losing Jason track of X, which, or, but he yeah, did four yeah. of them. Jason X, but what am I missing? Oh, Jason goes to hell. Yes, between, that's you right. know between that one. Um, but he did a, uh, you know, he 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 is a stunt man, and first and foremost, and he's uh, you know a stunt coordinator, and uh, you know with a very 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 imposing physique. But uh, he he it was an absolute honor for him to uh, put on that hockey mask. Uh, director John Beekler that he had worked with before uh, asked him personally to, uh, to, to take on the role because they could have carried over the previous actor, but uh, they wanted to be, you know, he wanted to work with uh, Kane Hodder, yeah. John Beekler did. And um, so a couple things, you know, I mean, so many th- stories, but uh, he talked about one thing I thought, which, which was quite compelling was the fact that um, he had been burned uh, in, in, you know, on, uh, on camera, actually, sorry, he, he had been filming 
himself doing a stunt just for his reel, just for his promotional uh, resume. Oh, yeah. And he burned himself uh, dangerously, and he was in the hospital. Wow. Mm. Anyway, so coming to uh, Friday the 13th Part 7, he did a full-body burn, willingly doing this. And he basically faced his demons, got in his his suit, and he did the longest burn uh, to date on camera for that movie. And it's pretty intense. Was there anyone that you wanted to interview that you didn't get a chance to? Well, here's the thing. Yes, millions. <laughs> it's an open-ended question, really. <laughs> think of it. Think of it this way. You know, it's like you invite. Uh, you, you, there's only so many people that you can invite to your party when right. you invite anyone, or you hope to invite anyone. And at a certain point, you know, if you invite one person, you think, well, co- you know, uh, socially, I need to invite that next person because that just makes sense. But at a certain point, when you say I want to have a party of about 25 or 30 people and you have 50 people in the room and you still haven't invited everyone you wanted, right. you got to stop at a certain point. Right. So that's my answer, really. You know, uh, We only have so much time and so much of a budget and so much of, uh, you know, it, we, we, 40 people where we've spoken to each of them for an hour or more. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of tapes. And hours and hours of footage. <laughs> That's that's remarkable. So in talking to all of these people and getting all these stories, what is the overall sense of, you know, what separates the horror genre from uh, except for the scares and, and that sort of thing? What separates horror from comedy and drama? And why do people attach themselves so viciously to <laughs> people? Really, I think it's a collectively it's a cathartic experience for people to watch horror um, people like to be safe in a movie theater to watch a horror movie and, and, and be scared and have their pulse race and sit at the edge of their seat, knowing at the very end they can walk away and be perfectly safe, ideally. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same thing like if you got on a roller coaster. You, know, you get on there knowing that you're going to feel like your life is in jeopardy, but when it all is said and done, other than it muscles up your hair, you're good to go, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think uh, it, it's a similar experience, the uh, reason why people pay to see horror over and over. Uh, that's the reason why. And and I think, you know, you got to make sure that you, uh, when you're talking about horror, that a lot of times people sort of delineate, well, it's only kind of one time type of genre entertainment, but a lot of horror uh, has, has a toehold or balances or straddles fantasy and comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to Joe Dante about the burbs, you oh, know, yes, for a yeah. lot of, because it, it's such a great film where if you, if you literally just changed the soundtrack <laughs> to something more menacing, you have a horror film. Now. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's true. And, and I mean, a lot of the eighties horror movies sort of had that played up the comedy end of it. Um, like, you know, gremlins and, and those sorts of movies made being scared funny as well. And interestingly enough, uh, Joe Dante talks about Gremlins and how that originally was a much darker story. Yeah. And uh, he, even, he even said, he revealed that uh, uh, um, Gizmo, the Mogwai, was supposed to turn into a Gremlin himself. He was supposed to be striped. Huh. But, but he was so beloved and uh, cute, and they decided that Zach Galligan needed a sidekick. They <laughs> totally re- redid it to be much more of a whimsical uh, film, although it barely towed the line there because it's one of the films that uh, angry parents said, you know, we need PG-13 in our, right. in our yeah. lives. As far as franchises, you talked about them before, but why were all the franchises so successful in the 80s? Because they're still remaking them now. Well, 
I think they build on each other, really. You know, uh, I think I think once the the Michael Myers and the Jasons were established, and even the Freddy Kruegers, everyone said, "I want mine. I want my own. I want my own Pinhead. I want my own Chucky." Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people are responding to these, and and you could, put, you could if you do a decent film. Uh, then you get to build on it, and even if the film is not that so not that great, the the essence of the genre is that you could do a lot with a low budget, and people will still see it because it has enough of the elements that people want to rent or see or sit in the theater for or watch on TV, and I think that's what separates horror from any other genre is that I think people are a lot more forgiving of bad whatever it may be acting story effects there's something collectively when you put it all together you don't mind if it's bad it's just it's a sort of a, a an enjoyable uh experience you know you've got the cronenbergs and the and the and the, the kubricks of the genre who are really you know knocking out of the park with some heavy 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 incredible indelible stuff yeah. but all the other stuff is super duper light and it's super fun and people will, will eat a light snack <laughs> in between some of the heavy meals you know in your opinion, how many sequels is too many for a franchise? Because <laughs> some of these like have gone on, especially the the Friday Thirteenth when it started getting when he suddenly he's in space. Well, Friday the Thirteenth, you know, we all know that it has to hit at least thirteen movies, and they haven't done that yet. That's true. Any, you know, financial troubles right now, <laughs> problems right now with uh, you know the rights to the franchise. But I was uh, of the many folks who other other than being extremely disappointed that. When Jason takes Manhattan, it's really Jason takes a boat on the way to Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, when Jason was in space and people, I don't know, select people like, oh, that's silly. I'm like, really? That's silly? Of course. (laughs) Let's put, you know, gosh, you know, we got, we finally got him out of Crystal Lake and, you know, he, he did some shopping in Manhattan. Well, let's yeah. put him in for now. He has, he's already been to hell. He has to restock. And, yeah, and, you know, you know. Got, there's new weapons out. You know, he's got to find new things. I always love how and, the... And, uh, and I, I, oh, I just want to interject real quick about that. And, and, you know, they found a lot of creativity there. I mean, the fact that they had a holodeck <laughs> where Jason goes on and he's kind of back at Camp Crystal Lake, even though it's right. a holodeck yeah. experience, it's, that's just brilliant to me. Yeah. I, I love in that, too, is how they had, like, the something like a Leprechaun series, let's say, I'll use that as an example, but they have, sub like, a, a sub-sequels to the Leprechaun series, so it's like Leprechaun 1, 2, and 3, the Leprechaun in the Hood 1 and 2. And like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think when there's nothing left to lose, the, the filmmakers get that much more creative. Yeah, it's true. That's true. <laughs> I'll still go see it. <laughs> they end up being some of the more, more entertaining uh, uh, entries in, in an, un, you know, ongoing franchise. Um but, you know, if you think about it, I mean, for every successful franchise, whether or not you like all the movies or some of the movies, you know, the, the 80s landscape and beyond is, is just littered with the remnants of, of, of wannabe franchise icons who just never caught on. You know? yeah. yeah. Now, going back to the 80s, when you were... Uh, uh, like a young person in the 80s what what movies oh, wait, did I'm you... a young person now what... <laughs> oh, that's right. when you were a younger person <laughs> what movies did you gravitate to like what were your go-to repeats in your in your VCR what what, what in the you... 80s yeah uh, I I was all over the map um, I, I was a movie fiend yep um, you know but I really found myself uh, gravitating to anything that was genre so, I mean, it could be, I, I, I saw first run all of these titles. I mean, I saw The Thing in the theater. I saw 
Firefox in the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, Clint Eastwood's Firefox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. I was a huge sci-fi nerd and Star Trek nerd. Um, you know, Gremlins and Poltergeist and anything Spielberg. It, it's all just. Um, it's funny. I, I remember. I have a very very potent memory of seeing E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I just literally, oh, it's Steven Spielberg's new film. I have to see it, of course. But uh, I have a very fond memory of being in this place called Movie Land in Yonkers, New York, oh. <laughs> in, the, in the area where I grew up. And um, the movie starts, and if you recall the beginning of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, when you first see E.T. kind of in the woods waddling around, you're kind of like, what is this? <laughs> Not the Close Encounters things that I remember seeing. Yeah. And you're like, you're not quite sure. And then, of course, E.T., you know, really wins over everyone's heart. But I remember the girls in front of me said really loud, whispering to each other, oh, this sucks. I told you we should have seen Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) And then by the end of the movie, they were bawling their eyes out. That's awesome. Very happy, (laughs) funny memory. But, yeah, I, I, I saw everything. I really gravitated to Whatever was was out there, even if it wasn't such a great film, uh, I loved it. I, I could go on forever, but I, you know, one other thing was, uh, I remember seeing a double feature of Excalibur and Outland that they wow. offered. Yeah, <laughs> and that that just blew my mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. That era was so chock full of all kinds of brand new stories and not just in horror but like you said in fantasy and you know you had your your dark crystal and your um uh, time bandits and all these Mm. massive worlds that were created in the 80s and like as kids at that time it was so fantastic and so unknown you couldn't help but be attracted to everything that was in the theater at that time well, I, I read Famous Monsters, and then I read Fangoria, Fangoria, but I was also an avid reader of Starlog. Oh, yeah. And I was a huge James Bond fan. And, you know, I, it just really covered the bases. If it had to do with, with imagination and, and being transported to another world, like Kramer versus Kramer would come around, I'd be like, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it anything didn't, else. It didn't build where, a where, Where's Where's Damien the Omen 3? <laughs> it didn't build a world. Those those sorts of movies are, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the, with the, you know, drama, but they don't build the same sort of fantastic worlds that you can really escape into. I think that's you, you hit the the nail on the head. There is, is for me at least, and I think for for folks of like us who are kind of from peas in the same pod, it's about escapism. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's about uh, you know think about think about how amazing it is that people <laughs> in some far off land named Hollywood were throwing millions of dollars to create a two hour experience where you could be transported away from your homework and domestic life and whatever, what have you, good or bad or medium. And you just got to escape in the darkness with your popcorn. It sounds romanticized, but it's exactly what I went after, you know, week after week. It's true. And I think that's why we just keep going back to them. Um, you had mentioned, you, you mentioned the famous monsters. Tell mm-hmm. us about, tell us about your experience with, with the magazine. Well, I loved the magazine when I was a kid. Uh, it's the first magazine I regularly bought, uh, other than comic books. Um, and uh, I became aware of it after I'd seen a, a revival screening of The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I'm a huge Ray Harryhausen fan. Oh, same with he- same here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Luke, Luke's a massive, the- massive Harryhausen fan. Over here. <laughs> so I used to watch that on TV all the time. And when I, when I got to see that on the big screen uh, and, you know, that... Uh, 
the the insane cyclops and everything that was in yeah. there, the skeleton bat, uh, sword battle. Yeah, I was just I was just uh, that was my Star Wars before Star Wars. Right. And, yep. Um, and so I remember seeing it just was a serendipitous thing where uh, a famous monsters magazine put the cyclops on its cover, and I remember just being in, in the newsstand, and I was like, oh, this is my magazine. <laughs> this is for me. Cut to me moving to Hollywood after going to film school and meeting Forey Ackerman at the Acker Mansion. He used to open up his home with and he was the ultimate collector of knickknacks and and movie memorabilia and and priceless artifacts and and completely <laughs> trashy plastic who knows what. <laughs> but he was a, he was a, a tall tale teller and uh you know he he I could I could really talk a lot about this what was special about famous monsters was that all the all the geeks and the nerds and the movie fans who read it felt a sense of community yeah. mm-hmm. and Forey ackerman made himself a, a personality he was the editor of a magazine and he made himself accessible and kind of the uncle to all he was uncle Forey. um you know he put his he put his own phone number in the magazine <laughs> If you want to call him, I kid you not. His, his personal phone pants. number. Yeah, his first. Uh, yes. Wow. I can only imagine some of the calls he got. Yeah. I don't know that that would fly these days, but yeah. But good for you him. Know, I don't think anyone would do. That. No. But, um, That's amazing. Really connected with his fans, but uh, so I got to meet him. I got to, you know finally, and that was just a, a real thrill for me. And then years later, uh, when I was working at Entertainment Tonight. I met the editor of Famous Monsters magazine in line to go see a movie, to see The Hobbit, a screening. He had his Famous Monsters sweatshirt, and I just started chatting with him. I said, nice sweatshirt. He's like, thanks a lot. I'm like, that was like my favorite magazine as a kid. And he said, oh, well, what do you do? Because I'm the editor. And I said, well, I work for Entertainment Tonight, and I just went to a Star Trek junket, and I was talking to JJ and all the folks. And he's like, oh, well, hey, I've been looking to have someone write a Star Trek piece bridging the show with the movies. How'd you like to write it? Wow. And I'm like, well, how would I like to write the magazine I loved as a kid? <laughs> I twist my arm. Yeah. Cut to, I, I wrote, I, I interviewed J.J. Abrams for that, and I, I wrote a bunch of pieces, including the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad piece. And uh, when all was said and done, and I left, I left Entertainment Tonight, Famous Monsters opened up their doors to me and brought me in as, managing editor and i turned around very quickly and, and uh, was fortunate to uh become uh the executive editor ed blair was the previous one before me and he's the one who gave me my opportunity so i'm very much indebted to him that's rem- and all of this came from a conversation in line to see the hobbit 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. that is an amazing so, origin story <laughs> well it, it, it just goes to show that if you want to if you like something, if you see something, if you make an observation, if you want to make conversation, you know, obviously reading body language, if someone turns their back or says, get the hell out of it, you know, go away, I'm getting a restraining order. Yep. You talk you talk to people, you know, mm-hmm. just make conversation. You never know where it's going to lead. They always say in radio, all they can say is no. Right, yep. like you can you can ask <laughs> right. any you can ask to do anything, park wherever you want to park, but all they can say is no to you. <laughs> That's very true. You might, might got to take a chance. <laughs> and so and so, was it sort of your time there and connections there that led to the doc? I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's that's the definite stepping stone. I, I think if I, you know, perhaps because I I spent 13 years in Entertainment Tonight and I did, did you know countless uh, uh, interviews with with folks at junkets and. 
so on. Uh, I, I would say that's obviously that's how I cut my teeth on that part of the, the job, that craft of the job. But I would say what gave me the ultimate street cred, other than having like a Wilhelm scream in the beginning of my opening, <laughs> is, uh, you know, is, is, is having, you know, where I did, I did seven issues. We were bi-monthly. So I worked there uh, for over a year and ultimately, you know, left, left uh, reluctantly, but I had a wonderful time and a wonderful opportunities there. And I got to talk to, your, your friend, Mark Hamill, oh, and, yes. you know, James Cameron, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, John Carpenter, you know, all these just amazing. I got to sit down with Martin Landau and oh. talk. I talked with him about Space 1999 and, and Ed Wood, and he, 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 he gave me four hours of his time. Wow. Hours. And I felt like I got a one-man show. It was, it was one of, probably the best interview I've ever had in my life. It was spectacular that is remarkable so of all of the people you've talked to over the years who is the one that you sort of fanboyed over most hmm, <laughs> hmm. uh in different ways you know there are times where because i meet all these folks and, and i'm always fanboying in some way shape or form but there's some people who i just you know i feel like i'm punching above my weight so it's an opportunity to just have a conversation with these people so Harrison Ford, uh, Oliver Stone, yeah. Mark Hamill, um, even J.J. and the cast of Star Trek, the Hobbit cast. I mean, I, 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 it, it's kind of a laundry list. I'm super duper lucky yeah. that I've gotten to interview so many people. But um, Mark Hamill really stands out because I've interviewed him. I interviewed him twice, and the first time was when I was entertained tonight. Uh, actually, I've interviewed him three times, twice at Entertainment Tonight, but the, the first time I ever sat down with him, I talked with him about this little movie called Sushi Girl that he was in, <laughs> and he yeah. plays a supporting kind of, uh, he plays sort of a Joker-style character, hmm. uh, and he's amazing in it. You should definitely seek it out if you've never seen it. I remember after we talked for, you know, 20 minutes about Sushi Girl, and I'm sitting across from him outside of Comic-Con at the Hard Rock uh, Hotel, and he's sitting on a swivel chair, just swiveling around, and around and around while he's talking to me, like a floating Jedi. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, with the time I have left, if you don't mind, I'd really like to ask a question or two about this little-known 70s movie that you took part of. And he goes, yes, well, sure, no problem. I'm happy to talk about it. And so I said, so Corvette Summer, you got to tell me. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're talking about Corvette Summer. Nobody knows that movie anymore. <laughs> but then we talked about Star Wars, and he said that for a, a kid who grew up loving Ray Harryhausen and Famous Monsters magazine, being in that cantina was this amazing, surreal experience. And I felt like, wait a minute, he's just a geek like all of us. Yeah. You know, he appreciates the same things. That's amazing. To, to be a geek and to grow up a geek and then to end up in a career where your geekdom just takes over, I just, that's, <laughs> like, that's a gift right there. He's, he's, he's the genuine article. He's just, he just loves stuff. Yeah. He really does. <laughs> that's amazing. So tell us what, um, going back to the documentary, tell us people can expect from this documentary. Uh, well, uh, if you go to uh, evshorrordoc.com, uh, we're having an Indiegogo uh, campaign that's going to go until the end of March. So if you want to reserve your copy or become a backer and, and look at that, that's, that's how you get it. Uh, and uh, we're hoping to have it in, in uh, July. And uh, the idea is to have a, a shorter cut and an extended cut because we've just got so much going on. So 
uh, you know, we're looking at a three-hour cut and then probably a 90-minutes-ish cut. And uh, we're doing lots of promotion right now because of the Indiegogo campaign. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the trenches putting this thing together and having <laughs> lots of fun doing it because it, it's a wealth of material. And the only problem I've got is, is picking the best stuff. Right. That's amazing. Well, we will have a link to the Indiegogo campaign on our uh, loopandlarry.ca. Yes. So you can uh, go and, and check it out. A couple more quick questions for you before we let you go. Uh, sure. What are your thoughts on the the new generation of horror, the the I, Jordan Peels and and the the um, revival of the Stephen King movies? What what are your thoughts there? Well, that's a that's a layered question. <laughs> so, uh, I think that I think the new horror is 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 wonderful. Uh, so many amazing films. Boy, I saw Hereditary last year, and that just blew me away. Oh yeah. Um, and, and I think Jordan Peele's stuff is really amazing. I can't wait to see us. Um, because there's a whole new element. You, you have a, a more sophisticated audience now. It's kind of like a post-screen quadrilogy world yeah. where the self-referential elements of horror have sort of changed, changed people's perceptions of how they, how they watch this stuff. And, and if anything, collectively, I think present-day horror has gotten to be much more visceral. And uh, I think the pendulum has swung in terms of CGI. I think it got a little too CGI-ish, and people got a little tired of that. Mm -hmm. So I think now uh, filmmakers are using a lot more practical effects and perhaps sweetening them a bit here and there with CGI, but you can't quite tell. Mm -hmm. So you really are invested in, in the story that they're telling. Um, when it comes to these uh, Stephen King remakes, you have to admit some of these Stephen King first time around films were not always so great. That's right. <laughs> but, it, but, but it's a goldmine of amazing material. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of The Dead Zone, uh, Christine, The Shining. Uh, you know, those are perfect films, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But Pet Cemetery, I really enjoyed, you know, sometimes Dead is better. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if, it's, if it's coming out of John Lithgow's voice instead of uh, Fred Gwynn, you know, I'll definitely give it a shake. I think it could yeah. be fun, and I, I thought they did uh, a wonderful job with it. I can't wait to see the second uh, half of it. You know, that to me was uh, it all came down to Pennywise, and I, I, yeah, you know, frankly, I actually just looking at at photos of Pennywise, I, I was like, no, I'm not quite sure if I'm if I'm feeling the design of this, uh -huh. uh, which was by. Um, uh, amazing work by Amalgamated Dynamics and Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. Once that movie started and once Pennywise starts talking in the drain and the delivery and that stray eye and that, you know, yeah. oh my gosh. That's so, <laughs> so good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's there's so much coming that is we have so much to be excited about. Are you guys are you guys enjoying the contemporary uh landscape of horror and all these uh these remakes do you, do you do you are you excited about these remakes do you want to see the new child's play a absolutely you know what i i i was trepidatious i but having seen and really it was uh like the the it movie was a was a catalyst for me it really drew me back into the whole genre i was i thought they're they're getting it right again <laughs> so i'm i'm all on board with the new pet cemetery and the and the remakes and Jordan Peele, I mean, he, he so far he can do no wrong. I mean, what I've heard about us is just spectacular. Um, and not to mention all of the horror that's moving to the small screen, um, you know, with Twilight Zone 
reboots and the and the Chucky TV show. Yeah, Chucky <laughs> TV series just to uh, to just declare, even though they were already already planning to do it, just to say, guess what? The original Chucky is still here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I got to sit down with Don Mancini. Um, actually, yes. I, I sat down with him for a Child's Play piece uh, on Hollywood Reporter, and then uh, for the Hollywood Reporter for the 30th anniversary of that film, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to sit down with him um, and Tom Holland for, you know, this film for In Search of Darkness. And uh, so I've gotten sort of the candid uh, reveal of what he really thinks about this uh, Chucky remake. And they they were uh, both um, producer David Kirshner and uh, Don Mancini were were approached uh, to be part of this new Child's Play reboot. But they, you know, respectfully declined. Yet they're making the movie anyway. <laughs> complicated arrangement of rights. So uh, they're not entirely pleased that it's happening. And and you're going to see an interesting di- division between stalwart chunky th- chunk- chunky fans, fans <laughs> of chunky soup, yes. uh, chunk, you know, chunky fans, and uh, you know, people who are going to give it a shake. You know, see if it's good or not. So. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but I, I'm, I am very, very much looking forward to that Chucky TV series because they're really going to have an opportunity to expand uh, this whole storyline. I don't know if you saw Cult of Chucky at the very end, but there's multiple Chuckies. And yeah. So yeah. It really opens up opens up uh, doors to all sorts of possibilities. And and I think just all of what TV has to offer the horror genre is creating new fans and building excitement for it just because of the amount of time that you can devote to a story that you can't give in two hours. So, I mean, I think, I think moving to the small screen is not a bad thing. I think uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think Stranger Things would have failed on all levels if it was just a film. I think if it was a two-hour film, it just would have felt like a, a very derivative story. But by having, what, 10 hours to, to tell that tale and really – just have lots of respectful, wonderful, happy, nostalgic nods to all of its influences, whether it's the Carpenter or Stephen King. I, it, it's amazing. It's a great thing. But I don't think it definitely would have worked if it was only a two-hour film. Well, I have a final question for you. If, if there's a, uh, a hidden gem from the 80s, a movie maybe not all of us have seen, what would it be? Other than Shopping Mall? Well... <laughs> I've been really, and this is, you know, I have, I'm not affiliated with them, but I've been really enjoying what, what's been coming out on Shudder. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff that uh, uh, I did not get an opportunity to see that I'm finally getting to see, especially because, you know, for my job, I get to see 80s horror movies all day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so for the ones that I haven't seen, you know, I get to rewatch the ones I haven't seen in a long time and the ones I haven't seen, you know, I know what I'm talking about and talking to the people about. And uh, I'd never seen Brain Dead before. Uh, um, I don't know if you guys have seen that. And that's it, it's a it's eccentric. It's weird. It's Lynchian. It's perverted. It's <laughs> it's not broad entertainment, but it is funny as hell. Yeah. Um, and I highly recommend that. And I also highly recommend, you know, Larry Cohen movies. I don't know if you've seen, you know, Q, the It's Alive trilogy, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the stuff. Yeah. Um, fun, ridiculous, clever, tongue-in-cheek stuff. Uh, Michael Moriarty anchors a lot of these films. Um, it's it's good stuff. See, I can't even give you one. <laughs> that's fine. Never... There's so much in the '80s, right? Like it's so hard. Like, and and that's why people need to see this documentary. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially these little, you know, nutshell moments. Um, God, I, I actually really wanted, I wanted to deliver something to you because I love them all in all different ways. I'm like the mother who's like, oh, all my homely children are wonderful <laughs> to me. And I, well, I think but, you're, I think you're not unlike most people who are a, a fans of horror in the '80s. Everybody loves everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm looking, I'm looking at a, a stack of of. Uh, of Screen Factory reissue Blu-rays of, of 80s horror. And one film that I loved in 1978, I think it was, was Phantasm. Oh, yeah. um, one, one of my favorites. And yeah. in the late 80s, Phantasm 2 came out. Right. And that's basically like, it's kind of like what Evil Dead 2 is to Evil Dead, Phantasm 2 is to Phantasm. It's kind of a reworking of the same story with a a more fortified budget and much more imaginative because they could do crazy things with effects. And it's kind of like a, a lock and load version of Phantasm. And I highly recommend that. So much to watch. <laughs> That's so awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, David. We really appreciate this. Well, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. I enjoy chatting with you guys because you know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> we, <laughs> we sure do. And we will be first in line Watching the doc in our living rooms when we get the when we get the Blu-rays. <laughs> Excellent. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks again. That was David Weiner, writer director of In Search of Darkness: A Journey into Iconic Eighties Horror, talking all things horror and making us geek out even more than we usually do. He had some great stories. Whew, that was good stuff. The doc comes out in July. Uh, if you want to support it, and I think you should, uh, we'll have the Indiegogo address on our website, so you can click there. Um, and get your get your very own copy. Well, that was our uh, big special. Yep. We've never done a special before. It was no, our first special. And that was pretty special. It was very special. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you, uh, I guess, next Friday with a, uh, with a brand new uh, episode. Absolutely. All right, we'll see you then. Produced by Matthew C. Loop and Lawrence Simner. A Loop and Larry production. Bueller. He likes it. He likes it. Bueller. Bad news. Fog is getting thicker. And Leon's getting larger. Inconceivable. Brian's right. It's an elf. Wax on. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Oh, Captain, my Captain. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Wax off. <laughs>